If you have your Bible there with you this evening, let's turn to the 24th chapter in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be reading, I think it's 22 verses, from verse 13 all the way down to verse 35. And I'll be trying to preach those verses. It's not often that you do so many verses in one time. But because we're dealing with a story, we have to go through it all at one time, more or less, to really understand it. So we'll, we'll, not that we'll be speeding through it, but certainly we'll, we'll, we'll be covering a lot of ground at one time. Let me read it to you, and then you follow along in your own Bibles. Now, behold... Two of them, the disciples, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they were still traveling and, uh, and while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have had with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? And he, that is Jesus, said to them, What things? And so they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in word, or in deed and in word, before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all of this, today is the third day since these things happened. And yes, certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said but him they did not see and then he that is Jesus said to them O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, uh, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. And he indicated that he would, go, would have gone further. But they constrained him saying, Abide with us, for it is forward toward the evening. And the day is far spent. And he, he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass that As he sat at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road? And while he opened up the scriptures to us? So they rose that very hour. And returned to Jerusalem. And there found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. Saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road. And how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. 
Jesus has risen. Here in the Gospel of Luke, we have this wonderful story, this wonderful little insight to normal disciples. We we see the care and the concern and the action taken by Jesus, not just to the eleven, not just to the, the heads of the church, but here we have previously unknown disciples. Cleopas, who's only ever mentioned here, and one unknown disciple. And yet, we, we see clearly demonstrated the Lord in his compassion and care for his own people, appearing to them, and speaking to them, and teaching them, and comforting them. It's a great reassurance to us that all souls matter to Christ. That all disciples matter to Christ. We're told here in verse 13 that these two people, we uh, assume they were both men. There's no evidence of that. Just as disciples. Were on their way home. On the third day, we know it so, because it says there, to the village of Emmaus. We don't know where that is today. It's one of those many villages that were probably destroyed through invasion or war. It was seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, I looked that up on Google, because that's what Google's for. It takes around one hour and 40 minutes at a fast pace to walk seven miles. Or two hours and 30 minutes if you walk at a relaxed pace. So we're not talking a massive journey. It was like an evening's walk from Jerusalem to their home village of Emmaus. When we use the word village, it was probably a a hamlet, a settlement, a little gathering of houses outside the city. We're told that it was in the afternoon, late afternoon or evening. They're on their way there. And as they're going together, they're talking about the things that had happened that weekend. And of course, their hearts are now troubled because of the news that Jesus' body is missing. And of the hysterics of the women who said that an angel had appeared to them. And we know that the men did not believe the women. They thought that they were talking ridiculous nonsense, no sense. These two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they are on the way, it says here that while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And the idea is that He was about to overtake them. He comes from behind and he's about to pass them. Don't understand why. The Bible says in verse 17 that their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And we know that from every encounter Jesus had after the resurrection, nobody recognized him until he revealed himself to them. That There was a veil upon their understanding. Whether he looked different or just simply they they didn't recognize him. I don't know why. But that's what the, the evidence says. And as he is about, or as he is walking with them, he asks them this question. And All good teachers ask good questions. And Jesus asks this question. What kind of conversation have you had with one another to leave you so sad? What's what's made you so sad? Why are you talking about things that are making you so sad? And then with verse 18, this gentleman called Cleophas answers and said, Are you the only stranger? 
the only visitor in Jerusalem that doesn't know about these things. We see from his answer that it was publicly known, widely known. All of Jerusalem was talking about that. It was the only thing that was being talked about in Jerusalem. The unjust murder of Jesus. It was the only thing in their minds. It was the only thing that was on the lips of the people. And this man points it out. Now his answer is very telling. It gives us an insight in how they saw Jesus. Remember, they think Jesus is dead. That all of their hopes, dreams of future glory have passed away. And now we get an insight into their true relationship with Jesus. What they really thought of him in hindsight. Looking back as it were. Because they cannot look forward. Because they, they do not have an understanding of the resurrection. And of the coming glory. For them it's all past. It's over. It's ended. They're going home now. And they say, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. We see how he was elevated, not just a prophet, but the prophet, the one whom Moses had prophesied, the proto-evangelistic whatever, the one who... Israel had been promised from Adam and Eve. But then he goes on. And how the chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified. And crucified him. It's very interesting that Luke in no way mentions the Romans. In no way... Puts the responsibility on the, the pilot or the centurion or the, the Roman soldier who drove in the nails or the man who pierced the side or Christ with the spear. Doesn't mention the, the legionnaires who beat Jesus and mocked him. Doesn't mention Herod and Herodus. Herod Flot. Doesn't mention. He puts. The blame solely and squarely on the leaders of Israel. The religious leaders, the social leaders, the ones who should have known better. The representatives of Israel. And he puts the blame squarely and solely upon them. Rome was just a weapon in their hand. They were the ones who conspired against Jesus. They were the ones who rebelled against God. They were the ones who did it. Everything else was just circumstance. And then he goes on in verse 21. Speaking about, we were hoping that it was he who would redeem Israel. They were hoping that Christ would come and in Christ he would throw off the bondage of the false religion that Israel would step forward and there would be this millennial reign on earth there and then. They were expecting that the empire of Christ would begin They were looking that Israel would take its place at the head of the nations. They had no place in their theology for Christ the sacrificial servant. Even though Jesus had been with them for three and a half years. We don't know how long these gentlemen had been with. But we know that Jesus at least three times spoke and taught of his own crucifixion. Of his own betrayal. His own being handed over to the authorities. Mocked, scourged, crucified. Buried and on the third day he would rise from the dead. 
And yet, their minds were dull. Their eyes were blinded to those facts. That wasn't the kind of religion that they wanted or accepted. Indeed, they were not brought up with that thinking. Traditional Jewish thought was that the Messiah would come and the kingdom would come and that they would be in the glory. It was as if the other prophecies, other teachings had been kind of pushed down and hidden. And Well, those things are too hard to understand. You've got to interpret scripture by scripture. They made all these excuses. It's too difficult to understand what that's saying. We don't really understand what that's meaning. But it says here in this place, he's going to reign. And so they were running to the end before they could get to the middle. Therefore, they were denying. And for them, again, they were defeated. They were disappointed. Jesus hadn't lived up to their expectations. And they were so terribly disappointed. We're told, aren't we, that they were sad in their heart. Despondent. In accordance with their understanding and their expectations from the scriptures, God had let them down. That somehow, by some means, the prophet, God's representative, the one who spoke for God and who was mighty in deed and in word, had somehow been defeated. And that the powers of darkness had gained authority and power and had won which had left these disciples defeated, despondent, depressed, sad in their heart. And then he goes on. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company arrived who arrived at the tomb astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they'd also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Yeah. These crazy women had come and, and they're troubled. They don't know what to think. They just, you know, they, their minds are unsettled. Not only is Jesus, has Jesus been crucified and killed, but now his body is missing. And the, act, the fact that they point out that it was early in the morning means that there was no time for anyone to have taken it. That's the point of why the ladies went early in the morning. So that nobody else would have any opportunity to get there first. The ladies would be the very first people at the tomb in order that no one else could have the opportunity to take the body. They were the, supposedly the first people there. As the day was dawning. And yet they come back and they're telling these troubled stories. And these men don't know what to think. Their faith, their theology, it's all messed up. It's all over there. Their hearts and their minds are abuzz. But all they know is Jesus is dead. And their hopes for the future are wrecked. And they're sad. And then Jesus says to them, Oh, you foolish ones. I like that expression. Oh, you foolish ones. In Old English, the, the expression was dullard. You who are not so sharp. In Ireland, we would say, You're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, are you? You know? You're not the sharpest. You're a few sandwiches short of a picnic. There's something not too clever about you. And he, he rebukes them. Now, it's not a terrible harsh, you know, like throwing them down. It's how you would speak to a loved one. But he's certainly pointing them out. Like, you're not, you're not being clever. 
and slow of heart to believe. You see, he's talking that there, he's saying that there, I want to say, when, um, when I was looking it up in the, in the dictionary, it said stupid. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I don't want to say that they were just, they were stupid. Because you can be being stupid without being stupid, if you understand what I mean. You can act stupidly without being stupid. And the circumstances had f- caused them to behave stupidly. And their hearts were slow to believe. They were reluctant to believe the testimony of the women. They were reluctant to believe the teachings of Jesus. Who had told them previously at least three times that we knew of. That he would die and be buried and be resurrected on the third day. And yet their hearts were slow to accept that. They were willful in their unbelief. The idea is to be like, you know when you, in the morning times when you're cold? Like when you're an old man like me. And you get out of bed in the morning and the first day, oh my knees are sore, my feet are sore. And you kind of like hobble into the kitchen. And you put, the, you put the water cooker on and you cook the water. And you don't really become alive until you have at least your second cup of coffee. You know, it's that slowness. Uh, you know, afterwards the joint's kind of up and you can move around. Well, they're, they're behaving in this slugger, dullard, slow way. You know, when they get up and again, you're, you're sore in your knees like I am and you don't go and play frisbee golf or, or chase the frisbee with people. You don't go playing police and chew with the children, okay? Because you're not that fast. And here we're having that. These people are slow of heart. They just, they, they're not willing to commit. They're not willing to accept it. They're fearful of believing unless once again they get disappointed. We can relate to that, can't we? You know, if you've been let down and someone has, or you have been hurt by some great disappointment, you're very reluctant then again to put your faith, your trust, to hope and hope that something will happen. And here, they saw Jesus upon the cross. They know that he was murdered, that he died They saw the spear enter his side and the water and the blood pour out. They saw him taken down from the cross and bundled up and deposited in a grave and the gravestone closed over. They know he's gone. And they don't want to hope lest they be disappointed. Lest, once again, their dreams be crushed. And yet Jesus' response to them, You foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. What all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? It's all part of the plan. I like it when Jesus talks like that. I like it when he, he, he demonstrates God's sovereignty over everything. That all of this was part of the plan from the beginning. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't God making the best of a bad situation. It wasn't that the powers of darkness and their representatives gained a foothold over God. Wasn't that the devil and God were in a fist fight and somehow the devil got a good punch in? It had been the plan from the beginning. And it says in verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, from all the scriptures, or in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What a fantastic verse. 
Could you imagine being in a Bible study with Jesus? Again, we're only talking about an hour and a half to two and a half hours perhaps of a walk. And Jesus, in that time, you can imagine when, when it was time to leave, they were like, no, no, stay with us. Stay with us. Come, speak more. Let us talk about these things. And Jesus began essentially with the Old Testament, is what we would call the Old Testament, their Bible. And beginning at the beginning of the Bible, in the five books of Moses, he went through and demonstrated from the beginning how the death and suffering of Christ was a necessity. How God had planned from the beginning. Could you imagine starting in the proto-gospel uh, from Genesis 3. The promise of God supplying that sacrifice of, of the crushing the head of the serpent. And then going on through all of the stories going to sacrifice his son, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. God shall provide a lamb. Going through the books of the law, Leviticus, could you imagine just like them dwelling Leviticus? All the sacrifices and how they, how they are a representation of different aspects of what Christ accomplished upon the cross. Showing that the, the that Sundabokken, as they call in Swedish, the escape, the scapegoat. How Jesus was that scapegoat. The necessity of death, of the pouring out of blood, of a sacrifice and a substitute. The necessity of how redemption comes at a cost, and the cost is high. It is life for a life. And only God himself could pay the cost. And he's wandering through and he's going through, the again, the books of, of Moses. Boom, 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 boom. And then he goes to the prophets. And he goes to Isaiah. We all know he was in Isaiah, yeah? In Isaiah, the suffering servant and the sufferings of God's appointed, anointed one. And then going through these other ones. And showing how all of these works pointed to Jesus. And you can just imagine them. I, I, for myself, I think that would be amazing. Being with Jesus and, and you're, you're crushed and you're, you're despondent. You're in despair. You're depressed. You're defeated. Your understanding of the scriptures is completely destroyed. You think God has deserted you and you've been let down and all of a sudden, someone comes along and just opens up the scriptures. You say, no, 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 you don't understand. Have you not read? Do you not know? Did not God say? And opens up the scriptures and reveals to you the true and real plan of God. And clearly explains to you how your expectations, your understandings are false and faulty. We who have reformed. We who have come out of something and come into what we would call biblical Christianity. We understand the joy of that. We understand the joy of, of the light, the illumination of the true and real doctrine, true and real gospel. I always think of when it was revealed to me, the doctrine of election. That was something I struggled with greatly. I was like, how can God have... That's just not fair. Oh, Lord, oh, no. And I remember reading Bondage of the Will by Luther. And I was going through Romans 9. And all of a sudden, my eyes were opened. And I had the book in my hand and the Bible in my hand. And I was, it, and I can't just say, look, I was excited. But something blossomed. Light shone on all those paltry fears and and troubles and arguments that I had against the understanding that God in eternity past had chosen people 
despite who doesn't, regardless of who they were, whatever, 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 that God had chosen me. And now that I was secure and safe in his hand, how did I know that he had chosen me? He saved me. He granted me faith. And how do I know that I would never fall away or falter or no one could ever lead me to hell or I couldn't lead myself because Christ, because God chose me, Christ died for me, Holy Spirit saved me. And the next link of the chain is he will bring me to glorification, to the fullness of it. I remember that moment that the scriptures when Martin Luther opened up my eyes to that position and I remember getting up off the chair and coming into the kitchen where Sarah was making dinner and I was like Sarah look at this that's amazing and Sarah was like "Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. strange man too enthusiastic over books I was like but it's not it's glorious it's wonderful and there was something this experience explosion of joy inside me and it's still today I live in that explosion I glory in the doctrine of election it for me is one of the most important doctrines in the Bible I thank God for it and so we who have reformed we who have come out of error and embraced the truth and had our dysfunctional thinking adjusted and have accepted the scriptures and what they mean. We understand what these disciples experienced as Jesus was making clear to them the things concerning himself. They were being adjusted. They were being brought back into line. He was rebuking them, but in the same sense, he was restoring them. What a glorious thing to be in a Bible study with Jesus. Even if it was only for two hours or a bit. And you're walking along, chatting. I can just imagine him just saying, oh, you know, just naming off this Bible verse and, and, and explaining to them. And so you say, he's saying, don't you see? And these few Jewish men are like, what is going on here? Heads wagging, hands going like this, you know. And all of a sudden that sadness has disappeared. All of a sudden, that, that, that sadness is forgotten. All of a sudden, that defeatedness has been taken off like an old dirty jacket. The sun has come up. Hope hasn't just peeped its little head over the horizon. Hope has exploded into life like a nuclear explosion, like the, the, the sun in its fullness. Light is shining. These men were in the depths of their despair, in the darkness of their error. And yet Jesus comes along and educates them. And for you and I, there's a great education in where do we get our hope from? Do we get it from circumstances? From the situations that we live in. Someone disappoints us and we get sad. Angry. Emotional. Events happen. Circumstances happen in our lives. And we are defeated in some aspect. Let down. We don't live up to our own expectations. Or others around us don't live up to our expectations. And we can suffer from that. Our spiritual life can suffer from the circumstances that we live in or live through. And it can be hard to recover. It can be hard to get back up onto our feet and to fortset that, to continue with Christ. We are so busy dwelling on the past. So busy poking poking at the wound. You know when you have an injured tooth or a a sore tooth or even a sore sore finger or something or a broken arm. Your natural reaction, isn't it? Especially when you've got a sore tooth, is to 
is to play with it, poke at it. It's really sore, so you have to make it even worse. When you have a, a, an injured arm, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I do martial arts and silly things that old men shouldn't do. And when I injure myself, you know, I, I'm forever kind of thinking if I stretch just a little bit more, maybe it'll get better. You know, my knees are sore. Maybe I shouldn't skip for an hour, but I'm going to skip anyway. It's our natural instinct to kind of poke at the things that cause us pain. And when we suffer from the circumstances and events and things that happen, it's our natural instinct to go over them again, to rehearse them. We run through the same events or we hook at it. Or we... We covet it. We, 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 it's, my pain is my baby. And we dwell there. But here in this story, Jesus demonstrates to us the importance of having a biblical understanding, a biblical as, aspect. He, he draws their attention away from the circumstances, from the disappointments from the despair of that weekend. And he thrusts them into the Bible. And all of a sudden, the defeat that they suffered has become their triumph. The so-called, I don't want to say defeat again, the the so-called betrayal has become their victory. Christ was not defeated, but he endured these things that he might rule rule and reign. And again, Jesus Christ demonstrates that in order that we might be encouraged in our faith, in order that we might be strengthened in our faith, we must turn to the scriptures. And in particular, the Old Testament. Ah. One of the difficulties that we have as a, as a pastor with the congregation is having the people of our congregation read and appreciate the Old Testament. First of all, one of the difficulties is getting people to read the Bible regularly. It's always a challenge. But to read and appreciate the Old Testament in its revelation, in the understanding of the promise that is to come, that if we are to truly understand Jesus his nature, divine and human, and his work, life of perfect obedience, a perfect sacrificial death, and his work today, now. He hasn't stopped working. He's not on pension. He's not retired. Jesus Christ is still at work, interceding for the church. Building his people. If we are to gain a true and real understanding of him, it must come from a living understanding of the Old Testament. And not just in a kind of academic form, like a university professor reading a a thesis or something. We must understand that those prophecies are to be fulfilled. That those insights of what will happen are true and real they're not poetry they're not parables it's a prophecy it is a statement made by God about something that he will do at some time and it will be fulfilled in its fullness that's what Jesus did with these two men with these two disciples Oh, to be there at that time. I, I think that would be awesome. It also expresses to us, it, it shows us the importance of talking about the Bible with people. Christians, do you talk about the Bible? We talk about everything, don't we? we talk about each other. We talk about football. Sadly, in these days, Corona takes up 80% of our stupid conversations. We talk about sports. Jiu-jitsu, football, work, 
whatever your hobby, whatever the flavour of interest you're in. But how often, believers, do we talk about Scripture to one another? One of the reasons is because so few of us actually read the Scriptures. So few of us actually are consistent in seeking after Jesus from the Bible. And then those of us that do are made to feel as second class citizens or somehow in some way fanatical when we want to talk about the Bible. Don't lord, don't lord the fact that you read the Bible over me. Don't make me feel guilty because I don't read the Bible. You feel guilty for making me feel guilty. And somehow, in some way, we are caged in. We are, we are penned in and pinned down. Beloved, we are to talk about the Bible. We're to talk Bible with one another. We're to... Speak about the Lord Jesus Christ and in doing so, it will cause revival within us. We will be enthused and impassioned with a new zeal for God and a new hunger and a new hope. Wouldn't that be awesome having a church full of hope? A church absolutely besotted, zealous for Jesus Christ enthusiastic and passionate all about him. Not just for the congregation. Oh, we're like a social club. No! For Jesus. For him and him alone. Beloved, let us not neglect talking about the Bible. Let us not neglect and sharing. I'm not saying make it a 35-minute conversation or... Two and a half hours. If you go for a walk in two and a half hours, that'd be all right. But, you know, just after church, don't be sitting there and holding someone hostage. Let me tell you what I read. Going through the book of Leviticus with them from chapter 1 to 18, you know, in half an hour. Blowing out their mind. But encourage one another. Encourage one another with a true and real view of God. Understanding that the scriptures were given that we might be enthused and impassioned and encouraged. That we might be a zealous people. Full of good works. The Bible tells us again that as they were drawing near to the village where they were going. Jesus indicated that he would go on further. But they constrained him. I like that word constrained him in my Bible. It means but they stopped him by force. They wouldn't let him go on. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome to have a church where your, your congregation says, no, please don't stop preaching. <laughs> wouldn't Daniel love that? You know that God is moving when Christians say, no, please don't stop talking. Please don't continue. Please stay with us. Because it was towards the evening and the day was far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took the bread. Now this was unusual because it is the host's obligation to take the bread and to bless it. There has been some speculation that this was the, the Lord's Supper, but it's not. All Jewish tables had bread as a centerpiece. It was their potato. It was their rice. It's the staple part of their diet. And I can just imagine these two disciples, wherever they were, whether it was a house or an inn or whatever, they're buzzing. They're high now on spiritual revelation. They're, they're, they're just wanting to talk about the things of God. And they're so into it that they're, they're not even concentrating on the food. They're not even thinking about dinner anymore because they're met. They're completely full of God. And they're thinking, like, okay, talk to us some more. Talk to us some more. And the food is, and the table is just secondary. And while those things are going on, Jesus takes the bread and breaks it. And he did it in his own normal way. The idea of blessing the bread, it doesn't mean in putting something in the bread. You know, like, woo. 
and it becomes holy bread. The idea is, um, all Jews would have done this. They, 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 as they're about to say, saying grace, we would say. They would take the bread and as they were breaking it, they would say, blessed art thou, Lord. And then they would give thanks. But they would always begin with, blessed art thou, Lord. And as Jesus is doing this, this was his habit. This was what he did in every meal, every time they had, were with him and they shared a meal. This was his custom. He gave thanks. And there was something so familiar, something so intimately Jesus, that when he did it, they knew who he was. Whether the veil was lifted or just it was quite obvious. All of a sudden, everything just clicked together. Everything fell into place. And it says here, their eye, and then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. Now this wasn't just that he kind of went, woo, and sneaked off out the back, you know, ran out the back door. Oh no, it's not me! Something supernatural happened here. All of a sudden he was gone. He didn't fade away like a ghost. Ooh, he was just gone. I'm reminded of the uh, evangelist Peter. Not Peter, Philip, sorry. And remember when he, he um, baptized the Ethiopian official. And the Bible says he was then taken from that place. The Holy Spirit translated him. Somehow in some way he was taken from that place to another. Flip. Something happened here. And he, Jesus was just taken. The, the work was done. And now they were encouraged in their heart. And they had a certainty that Jesus was alive. All the doubts and fears. Despondency. Sadness was gone. Jesus was alive. Not only had they met him. But they knew for certainty because they now knew that the scriptures taught that Jesus had to suffer and die as a sacrifice for their sake. That he was the true and real Passover lamb. And with that assurance, with that foundation, the Bible tells us. In verse 32... They said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road while he, and while he opened up the scriptures to us? <gasps> That's what every preacher longs for, you know. Sadly, too many of us see quite the opposite. The hearts are dulled and heads are nodding. All too often in our time, people want to hear funny stories and amusements. And their hearts are not quickened. Oh, that we would have a people starving for the word. It's good when we see new people coming who are starving and hungry and have only ever experienced the, the nonsense of the world outside. And they come, you see they're starving and they love it and they're, they're thriving. Oh, that the Lord would give us all hearts like that. Where we would appreciate and seek after the true and real teaching of God. And indeed this is the, the whole essence of revival. That our hearts once again would burn within us. With a passion and an enthusiasm for Christ and for the things of Christ. Oh beloved. I wish we could say that. I wish we could, every time we leave church and somebody says, so how was church today? My heart burned within me. Oh, my heart. I, what the preacher was saying, I was like, yes, and a man. Oh, and people were like, what? What kind of church do you go to? Oh, oh, the things of God were opened up and I saw and understand and the glory that's to come and the hope and the, the, the security that I enjoy now. Oh, I wish you could see inside me. The fireworks and the celebrations. Oh, too many of us are like, oh dear. 
When's church coffee? I hope we have donuts today. Too many of us are thinking about what we did this week or what we'll do that week. Too many of us are thinking about the person sitting over there. Now whether that's a a critique against us who are preachers or a critique against those who are sitting in the in the pew or perhaps both. But we need a little bit more spirit-filled revival. We need a little bit more empowered preaching. We need a little bit more our eyes being opened. Because this wasn't a natural thing. Let's always remember this. This wasn't a natural thing. Remember, their eyes were veiled. Their understanding, not necessarily their, their, their physical eyes, but their understanding was veiled. They didn't recognize it was Jesus. And Jesus pointed out that they were foolish, stupid, and slow to believe. It was the Spirit who was revealing these things to them. Jesus could have come up and opened up the Bible and, and showed them these things. It could have just been knocking on a tree, banging on dead wood. Nothing. But it took a work of the Spirit to unlock their hearts and open up their eyes and call them and call them and comfort them. Beloved, we need more of that. As we're praying in our prayer meetings, we need to be asking the Lord to open up the eyes of the blind in this generation where we are so guilty of being biblically stupid, of being dullards, of being slow of heart to believe, do we not need the Spirit more today than perhaps ever before? With all the voices and all the distractions, with all the temptings here, there, and everywhere, do we not need God to move in our generation and in us more than ever before. Oh, beloved. We need a little bit of this revival within ourselves, do we not? I know I do. But the Bible says then, uh, they rose that very same hour. That's just a, a, a nice way of saying, there and then they went straight back to where they came from. And I, I can just imagine that the, the journey back was a lot quicker and a lot more enthusiastic than the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. I can just imagine at the beginning they were all like sad and despondent. By the end of that, when they got to Emmaus, they were like, oh, this is awesome. When Christ vanished, the fireworks were going off. The enthusiasm was at 100%. Revival was breaking out. I can just imagine the tambourines coming out. Revival! And then Jesus is alive. Oh, we have to tell people, Jesus is alive. He really is alive. It's not the end. It's about to kick off. It's about to get... Things are going to happen. Wow! And all of a sudden, they're rushing back. I can tell you, it didn't take two and a half hours for them to get back to Jerusalem. These men, I can just imagine pulling up their skirts. Men didn't wear skirts, but you understand what that meant. Pulling up their robes, skirts, and running through the dark to get to Jerusalem. Which was always a dangerous thing to do. Wild beasts, robbers, and cliffs. Not good to run in the ancient days. No street lights back then. And they returned to Jerusalem. I thought to myself, now, did it mean that that very same hour, so it took less than an hour for them to get to Jerusalem, or did they leave that very hour? It's hard to say. But they returned with great passion and zeal. They who left sad and despondent and defeated, now they returned and they had met with Jesus. And there was a difference about them. There was now something you could see in them. You could just because of the change of their character, the ch- they were different. They were no longer defeated. 
they had met with Jesus and there was a life about them, a hope about them, a passion and an enthusiasm about them that wasn't natural. You can't self-generate those things. You can't pick yourself up and get yourself going and whoa! Something had changed in their worldview. And they had got back and they joined with the, the, the band of brothers who were there. And they said, the Lord has risen indeed. And, has, oh, and the brothers who said were there, risen and, and indeed and appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened to them on the road. He had made known to them in the, break, in the breaking of the bread. As he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. All too often we can become disappointed. All too often we become sad. That can take away from our zeal, our passion, our enthusiasm. We become slow of heart, dull of mind. We suffer and those around us suffer. Our conversation spreads sadness and despondency. You know that cold breeds cold and heat breeds heat? You put a warm thing next to things that are not warm, it's going to make them warm. You put a cold thing next to things that are cold, it's going to make them cold. I know this to be true because we have a, a, a cold box where you put you know, your cold stuff and you put those little ice packs. But the same cold box we use for hot things as well. So you put hot things in it and then they stay hot. I think it's a miracle box. What? It's just well insulated. We need more of Christ in our hearts. More love for Christ in our hearts. The only way we're going to be able to do that, the only way we're going to receive more enthusiasm and passion, more revelation of Jesus Christ, it's not by wishful thinking. It's not by just aimless prayers. Oh God, come and meet with me. It is through the revelation of Christ through Scripture. It is through reveling, relishing what God has revealed about himself in the Old Testament. And understanding what God has done for us, what Christ has done for us in the New Testament. Appreciating that. Not just what he's done, but what he's doing for us and what he will do for us. This demonstrates to us the importance of talking about the Bible. Let's never be ashamed. Let's never be embarrassed to speak about the Bible. Let's never fear about talking to people about God. Or specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. What he has done. We, we kind of live in that dread. Well everybody knows. I, I live in that dread as a pastor, as one who dwells in the book. I'm always afraid people think I'm preaching at them, which I probably am. <laughs> That's what I do. But I also often make the mistake of thinking that people know as much as I know. The things that I consider simple and ordinary and commonplace, some people don't even know about them. People have never been in those books of the Old Testament. People have never dwelt in the prophecies of the second coming. They've never taken weeks, months, long periods of time to walk carefully through the construction of the verse so that they might understand. And therefore they've never squeezed all the goodness out of the verse. They've never known the joys of Discovering the truth about election. And yet God can use us, beloved, to encourage one another and to strengthen one another. Let's not just be a social club with religious tendencies, but let us be a people that are united in our faith in God through the revelation of the Bible. We see the witness here of our Lord Jesus Christ using this. Jesus could have just appeared to them and said, hey boys, it's me. Ask me anything, I can tell you. How do we know it's really you? Jesus, well, do you remember that time you did this and this? He didn't do any of that. Jesus didn't have time or care to prove he, that he was who he was. 
he took them to the scriptures and gave them the solid foundation, the rock on which they could stand. If it was good enough for Jesus, is it not good enough for us? And we see the fruit of that. We see what came about by Jesus comforting them and encouraging them, rebuking them, instructing them, teaching them from their hearts burned within them. You can't make that happen. You You can't kind of say, okay, guys, you... Our friend Jesus was murdered. Oh, we're shell shocked. Like, his body's missing. We just don't know what to do. We're so sad and despondent. Woo-hoo, and all of a sudden they're like, Phew! some sort of schizophrenic up and down movement kind of thing. Bipolar. Doesn't work that way. Jesus demonstrated to them clearly from the scriptures, and that the Holy Spirit then blew life into their hearts and the flame flared and it became a roaring fire and their passion and their enthusiasm ate up their sadness and their depressed and their despair and all of a sudden they are experienced revival they're, they're revived in their faith they're passionate and all of a sudden their dinner's forgotten their tiredness is forgotten Their worry about it being dark is forgotten. The only thing in their mind is they want to tell people that Jesus has risen. They need to get back and make sure everybody understands that what the lady said this morning was true and real and Jesus was right and now he's up and like, it's amazing. It's amazing. Oh my goodness. I can't tell you what's going to happen, but it's amazing. If we want to see revival happen, we must preach the Christ of the Bible. From beginning to end. If we are desiring to have people care about the things of God. We can't come to them with the things of the world. We can't come to them and try and be their comrades in the things of this life. We must open up their eyes to the Bible. To the truths of Christ from the beginning. Holy Spirit will do the rest. Beloved, this is a great story of the compassion of Jesus. How random is this? That in the evening as they're walking home, Jesus appears to them. On the resurrection day. Not one of those whom the Father has given me will be lost, he said. And he steers them back. They're going home all depressed. We've given up. I'm going back to whatever I was doing before I met Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I have a plan and a purpose for you. And we see him rescue them. We see him comforting them. Taking care of their sadness. Opening up their eyes that they might see the truth. Oh, that the Lord would do that with us. Oh, that we would get a hold of it. Now you and I, beloved, we have been given the New Testament. What a gift. The early church never had that gift. We have that gift. And it's so much easier for us than it was for them. Look on to Christ. Look to the scriptures and be encouraged. Know that Jesus is walking with you and will go out of his way to meet with you. Every time we hear the scriptures being preached from the front, we should be hearing the words of God, hearing the words of Christ. Not just the words of a man, not some philosophy, not some diatribe from some denomination, some denominational bias. But our eyes should be open to the truth of Christ. Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is alive. He's more active today than he's ever been before. The kingdoms of this world will bow the knee to him one day. 
He will return with great pomp and ceremony, not in secret, but every knee shall bow, every eye shall see him, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Beloved, let's take hope. Let's be encouraged that the same Jesus who met those disciples on the road to Emmaus has met us. And we will be comforted. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, because we know that you have met with us, that you have opened up our eyes, you have opened up our hearts. You have, Lord, convinced us of the reality of the resurrection. You have convinced us of the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, we are grateful that you have worked on our behalf. The Lord, this was always your plan from the beginning. From before the beginning, before the foundation of the earth, you were active. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that purchased our redemption. We thank you, Lord, that it wasn't a plan B or an accident. Lord, it was always a plan that, Lord, by these things you might enter into your glory, that you might rule, Lord, in your kingdom. We are grateful, Lord, for the the fulfillment of every prophecy that you made. Lord, that everything was 100% achieved. And we are grateful, Lord, that we look at the, the rest of the prophecies, that we know that, Lord, you who have been faithful to begin a good work will be faithful to complete it. Lord, that everything that you have said will come to pass. Oh, Lord, we know not when or where or how, but, Lord, we know that you are in control. And in that, Lord, we are grateful. Father, we pray you would receive much glory. We ask us in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.